Welcome to Wrestling with God Show, the podcast where we grapple with big questions about faith, religion, and life. I'm Irish McMahon, and I'm here with my friend, who's also a big fan of women and an Irish Catholic priest, Father Len McMillan. Hey, Father Len. Good morning, Irish. Good morning, yeah. <laughs> You're smiling. Well, I don't know if I like that intro, a big fan of women. Makes me look lecherous, but... Well... I think you'll be able to, you know, uh, people will see what I'm talking about, I think. So, so Father Len, there's uh, much discussion these days about sexual identity, what it means to be a man or a woman, uh, what is the proper relationship between man and woman. The word equality is thrown around a lot in these conversations. And since uh, we share great appreciation for women and women in our lives, let's talk about what God envisioned when he created woman and how God views the role of women in the world and the church. Okay, great. But let me start with this, only because for personal reasons, I have a mother and I have some sisters. And my mother got divorced. And my mother always did the finances in the house. And so she's always been incredibly frugal and responsible. And my dad was very intelligent, but he left that all to my mother. And when my mom and dad got divorced, my mother was shocked because uh, she wanted to take out a loan to finish something in her house. And the bank said, well, you have no credit. And my mother had been dealing with this bank for years and as soon as she got divorced, this is obviously years ago, she had no credit whatsoever, even though she's the one who built up their great cre credit. And I'm just saying this because historically, there has been this bigotry against women. And even when I was growing up, my dad's from Butte, Montana, and he was insisted that my sisters knew how to box. So he taught us boxing from kindergarten on. He was very aggressive butte type, but how to box. He wanted yeah, to teach you. I know I have a very strange, strange childhood. That's another story for another time. Probably well, totally bizarre, but my dad was <laughs> right where my dad wanted to teach my sisters how to fight because he guaranteed them at one point of their life, somebody's going to try and take advantage and you're going to stand up for yourself. And in both my sister's lives and their careers, bosses in the workplace have tried things. That there is just this, I think, this bigotry against women. Now, it's, you can find it in the church. Like Thomas Aquinas, who is brilliant, one of the things he said that is, I think, just shocking is the reason why women shouldn't become priests is because he believed women were deformed men that everybody is actually born uh, male in the womb, but either due to too much moisture in the womb or northern winds, the <laughs> fetus gets deformed and comes out a woman. Not great science. No, <laughs> not really. Thomas Aquinas, actually. Well, got it completely wrong, but he, he was getting that from Aristotle. Um, oh, anyhow, good. so like that's a really kind of twist of scripture and philosophy uh, that, women aren't as good as men. And my only point is that there has been this history of bigotry. And the same way I mentioned this before, that people interpret prophecies in the Bible through their cultural lenses, and then they're surprised that Christ didn't fulfill 
their interpretations. I think people have this approach towards women that first they see it through their cultural biases of their time and then believe that God sees women in the exact same way that they think about women's issues. So they completely twist the interpretation of the scripture to fit their worldview, their social... Because they have their conclusion already made. Already made. But the real shocking part is how Jesus and in the New Testament, St. Paul, how they actually have this much different, this prized position for women. And a lot of people will say, well, St. Paul is against women. Actually, the opposite is true. And they always like to quote that line where they say, wives, be submissive Submissive to your your husbands. Which I always love when that is read at mass in the Feast of the Holy Family, because you can just see women roll their eyes. Oh, for sure. But the problem is that Paul... There's a problem with that. Just explain that scripture is that Paul does say wives be submissive, but he also says in another letter, husbands be submissive. So, you know, husband, you would really want to get both of those together. And here's the major thing. The word submissive in Greek does not mean subservient in English. And that's how people are interpreting it. Submissive in Greek was a vow that you had taken that military, that it's this vow that, you know, if the general says, take that hill, you take the hill, even if it costs you your arm, your leg, your eye, it's a military fighting term. And what he means when he says men be submissive to their wives is that for the sake of love, lose your mochismoism, lose your ego, lose for love, you should be willing to sacrifice everything. And for your for wife. Women, right. And women, wives, be submissive to your husbands. Sacrifice whatever you need for the sake of love. And yet, so often in the popular Christianity, they think it means that somebody should be sub, subservient. Well, I think no. they take it into a whole sexual mode almost, too. Uh, yeah, that which... I wouldn't know. but <laughs> Well, of course. <laughs> I just, you know, especially in the movies and TV, that's how they always portray it. But that is not what St. Paul meant at all. And another thing, now this is really rare, but I like this. In the Bible, St. Paul talks about veiling, about women wearing veils on their head. And, you know, so somebody who says, well, you should always follow the Bible. And the Bible says women wear veils. So why aren't women wearing veils today? But it's not really about wearing a piece of cloth on your head. It's what the cloth sig- signifies. Wearing a veil meant that one was unavailable or married or had taken some sort of vows. So that's what a veil means. Single women were unveiled. Prostitutes were unveiled. So married women, nuns, the Virgin Mary, they've all taken vows. So that's why they appear in veils. And you only had to wear the veils in public because it let people know that you've taken some sort of vow. In their own homes, women would be unveiled. And so this question comes to St. Paul, should women be veiled or not? And what about at Mass? Well, think about this. This time period, Mass was celebrated in people's private homes. And in your private home, you wouldn't have to wear a veil. But it's a public setting. So Paul does say that married women should wear veils at mass, uh, even if it's in your own home, because otherwise it gives the impression that you're unmarried. 
In modern so times, it'd be like not wearing your wedding ring. So it's not like to hide you or demeaning no. or diminishing you in any way. The opposite. It's it totally gives the you opposite. Dignity. It, yes. Wearing a veil is about dignity. Now, here's the really shocking part. What St. Paul also says is a woman should have authority over her own head. Now, typically, a veil meant that you're under somebody else's authority. What Paul is saying in Greek is a woman should have authority over her own head, meaning she has her own dignity that can't be taken away and doesn't come from somebody else. This would have been shockingly controversial in Paul's time. He's promoting that women have their own dignity. That's revolutionary for his time. And then he goes on to say, if she doesn't wear a veil, let her be shaved. Now, it sounds like he's saying, if she's not going to wear a veil, hold her down and shave her head. And shame but, her in a way. Yeah, but that's actually not, that's a misinterpretation, what scholars would say. Head shaving was a way of publicly shaming a woman. And Paul is saying, if you're not going to give women their own dignity, you might as well shave their heads because you are shaming them. So wearing a veil was a woman proclaiming her own dignity. And if you go back to Christ, Christ welcomed prostitutes. And the church gave ex-prostitutes the veil because Christ had given them their dignity, not a patriarchal system. So the conclusion... And, the, and, the, and, and, and they'd had a change in their life. They'd made a right. vow to Christ to, to turn their life around and stop being a prostitute. I mean, that's right. really... And so the same way Christ gave these women dignity, St. Paul is saying, yeah, all women... The church should give all women dignity. That's, That's amazing. I, I'm old enough to remember when, I don't remember how many women would wear veils uh, when they came to Mass, but the, uh, many of them did back in the day. Yeah, and don't think of it as a sign of being subservient. It's a sign that, no, the church believes women have their own dignity. Yeah, that's, that's a much different symbol. Totally. I mean, uh, that, that's that's very cool to know that. Or even look, St. Paul says about women, where this sounds strange, but he says, be a man. And he's not gender bending. He's saying he, that to a woman now, be a right. man. Okay. Right. He's not gender bending. What he's saying is that they should have the bravery of a soldier for their faith. And the odd part, in the early church, they did. In the early church, if you look at the saints in the early church, there are thousands of virgin martyrs. And virgin martyrs has nothing to do with sexuality. It actually has to do with marriage. Is that in the Roman state, uh, you married who your family contracted you to marry. Nobody cares about who you're in love with or what you want. You do what you're told. And for these women who were Christian to say, no, I have my own dignity, that goes against the Roman state. That's why so many were martyred. That's why they're called virgin martyrs. So, like, it's really kind of strange where if you're ever reading the martyrology of early saints, uh, you know, there's just hundreds of virgin martyr, virgin martyr, virgin martyr. And just as an aside, I'm going down a different segue. I was uh, in Santa Clara and I was getting my master's and there's a bunch of priests and nuns in, in that group and, and everybody was going around and you know, it just, to me, it was kind of silly because we were going around the room and, you know, I'm Monsignor So-and-Poobah and I am in charge <laughs> of pubartery or whatever. 
and everybody's going around telling about their great reputation. So I thought I'd add some levity, which I'm not really good at. So I stood up and I said, ah, my name is Father Len McMillan, virgin and martyr, and neither state has been especially pleasing. And nobody <laughs> laughed. <laughs> and so, so they didn't get it at all. No, no, they got it. They didn't think it was funny. So oh. afterwards, this one priest comes up and he says, I thought that was hilarious, but nobody else was laughing. You know, <laughs> Virgin and martyr, neither state especially pleasing. But you get all these virgin martyrs. So in word... And at the cost of these, at their own lives, women were dying for the faith in great numbers. Women were not the weaker sex, quite the opposite. They're the example of bravery. The example of their martyrdom empowered more and more conversions. The church was exploding due to the martyrdoms. And yeah, men were martyred as well. But there was something even more empowering about women dying for the faith that spread the church. So here's the odd part. If you really think about it, the church was the first women's right organization. And for 2,000 years ago, that's pretty shocking. It's Christ and St. Paul and the early martyrs who actually were promoting women's rights. And women's rights were rare in history. Few countries historically honored women's rights. You had Ireland, which women actually had more rights than men. Predominantly Catholic, right? Well, no, this is actually even before Catholicism. Okay. And Greece and Rome, they were terrible to women. Greek women had hard lives. Women were substandard. They had hard lives. Jews were actually fairly progressive towards women's rights compared to other nations. But it's basically the Jews and the Irish. In Greek and Roman society, a woman can't eat at the same table as a man only on certain feasts, but otherwise men eat with men and women eat after men. So apparently so, because we're Irish, we've kind of inherited this great appreciation for women and women's oh, rights and that kind of thing. Is that what you're saying, Father Len? Oh, I, I would say fear, but that's just me. <laughs> I'm afraid of Irish women. Um, but, you know, a lot of people think women's liberation is a trigger issue, and for some people it is. But I like to say I'm for women's liberation as Jesus was for women's liberation. Because Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, it takes too long to explain, but he's constantly breaking these rules on how women have to be kept down. He keeps breaking all these rules. He greets women in public, which wasn't allowed. That's treating them as an equal. And it wasn't just Jesus and the 12 apostles. He had hundreds of disciples the 12 apostles were just the leaders. But oddly enough, in Luke, it mentions a group of women who went around with the 12 apostles, and it's the women who did the cooking and the caring for Jesus. Only Luke mentions it was women who took care of him. So Jesus is not being progressive. He's being countercultural. He's offering a whole new world where women and men are treated as equal. And Jesus is always fighting the dig for the dignity of all people, Gentile, women, lepers, poor. So in no way does Jesus want women just stuck in knitting circles. Jesus is against that bigotry of women. St. Paul is anti-patriarchal. He praises women for their leadership, Lydia and Juna. In fact, do you know, 
you know who St. Paul says the greatest apostle of all was? I don't. St. Juna. And you have to think, well, who the heck is St. Juna? Nobody That's what really I was knows. just thinking, Father Lamb. I mean, but like he praises all these women of leadership who led the early church. Or, you know, I, I'm just saying that the early church, Jesus, St. Paul, or like I love St. Therese of Lisieux, where Therese, um, she's in this kind of monastery art museum as she's traveling to Rome. And uh, she loves looking at all the art. But at one point, there's a sign that says, no women pass this point. So she thinks to herself, and she writes this in her book. She says, I thought, you know, on any Sunday, there's more women than men in church. And the women were always faithfully sticking by Christ, even at the cross, not the men that ran away. So she concludes, well, that sign's ridiculous. (laughs) And she just goes in and starts looking at artwork. Just Um, blows right past the sign. I love it. But think about that. It wasn't a sociological deduction. It was a faith deduction that she realized "Ah, women are equal to men. That was St. Therese. Or uh, there's this other saint, uh, Juana de la Cruz. She's uh, this Mexican saint. She's kind of the, the... Shakespeare of Mexico wrote all this great stuff. She was just this genius from an early age, uh, born poor, but she taught herself Greek and Latin uh, at like age eight. She was incredibly brilliant. And she actually says she became a nun because of the library in the nunnery. Hmm. And she, she was incredibly brilliant and offered her intellect to the world. It's kind of a sad story because she criticizes one priest for a really ridiculous homily and kind of gets persecuted. But what she offered the world still is her great intellect. Or even just one more example, this is non-Catholic, but there's an abolitionist named Sojourner Truth. And Sojourner Truth was a slave who escaped, who then became an abolitionist. And she was always called by this voice. The voice of God led her everywhere. And at one point, Frederick Douglass gives a speech where he says, you know, hatred and slavery is so a part of the Deep South, there'll never be a time that there won't be slaves. And Sojourner Truth gets up. She's uneducated. She gets up and she says, Mr. Douglass, do you believe in God? And he says, well, yeah, I believe in God. And she says, God showed me in a vision. One day, all slaves would be free and women would have the right to vote. She didn't get that from her education, she had none. She got that from her faith. That's amazing. I know. Like, so I, the instrument that is supposed to bring dignity to the world is faith and religion. And von Balthasar, this great theologian once said that the Virgin Mary awakened the faith in baby Jesus. And I believe just as Mary awakened the faith in baby Jesus, so women's role in the church is to awaken greater faith in the world. It's the same role of men, just done differently. So women's role is to offer the church and the world their gifts. uh, And they have a wisdom to offer. And my point being is that it's also a different wisdom that men offer. Now, I come from the time period of the 80s, right? Where in the 80s, in this kind of liberal thought, there's this thought that men and women really are the same. That's just different parts. You know, parts are parts. What's the difference? Um, uh, that, uh, I think that's still fairly prevalent myself. Well, I think today, though, it's more um, 
current times promotes that male and female are just sociological, cultural imposed definitions. So it's slightly changed. But one thing I have noticed really well over the years that men and women are different. Believe it or not, I've come to that strong conclusion. Men and women are different. I'm totally with you. Studies have proved it where an infant, male and female, they just blow on them to shock them and they react differently. Or toddlers, they they did these studies where they put a toddler and separate it from its mother and separate it by this transparent barrier. And it's really funny. All the little boys would want to get to mother and would just run right at the transparent barrier and then fall back and keep at it. The little girls did something different. They would sat, sit down and cry and make the mother come to them. <laughs> they were, in fact, a yeah, yeah, little smarter. Or they, they recorded all these uh, videos of children at play on a playground. And it's really interesting. Girls, girls sit face to face. And girls, how they solidify a friendship is by sharing some bit of secret, some bit of gossip about themselves or somebody else. You know how little boys sit? They sit usually facing the same direction, not face to face. And how boys make friendship is either through competition with each other or against each other. It doesn't really matter. So like those aren't things that are just culturally imposed. That's a whole different way of looking at the world. And they're women totally have, true. Yeah. My life experience would tell women me have that's a totally true. Perspective. You know, this study, like women, did you know, are better at investing money than men? Men take to make more risky investments. Women typically don't like taking risky investments. Or men have a very, this is what I noticed in the priesthood, like in a monastery, a monastery of men is a very hierarchical pyramid. One on top, you know, triangle, that's how power flows. Every nunnery, every convent of nuns I've ever known, they're really into circles. They totally. sit in circles. And I like, I noticed that as a young priest and it's like, oh my God, there's nuns here. They're going to make us sit in a circle. <laughs> I do not like like sitting in circles. You know, you talked about how men, how they bond or get together and, and whatever. It's a competitive kind of thing. I started a radio station in Minneapolis years ago just for women. And most most of the employees were women. And the woman who helped, you know, kind of create this programming and stuff talked about this circle the way, and she related it, the way that women communicate, they stand in a circle and one person- I noticed the same thing. And, and yeah. one one woman is always given the, the, the chance to jump out of the circle and stand in the middle and talk until she's done. And then she gives way to another woman where men are always competing for the stage and competing for attention and uh, there's no such thing as a circle. Or, you shove each other I, I, in and out and push them around, and it's crazy. And, you know, though, I don't, I don't want to have to share. I just want to be told what to do. <laughs> I, hate to, I, I don't want to hear everybody's feelings. So my only point being is that women see the world and life differently than men. And it's not that they see it wrong or that men see things right. They just see it differently. 
And women think in terms of relationship, of job and family and others. And I think for us to be a community, to see reality correctly, we need to use both eyes. Women need to have a voice in society and in the church so that we can fully know what God has set before us. Otherwise, we're going through life with one eye closed if women don't have complete dignity in the church and the world. I I completely agree. That's a great that's a great analogy too. having just one eye or one eye open, because uh, it is men and women see things so differently. To me, what I've learned about women is they they're very instinctive. They have emotional intelligence. Like one of the things that frustrates my wife like crazy, she will offer an opinion. I always like to hear what she thinks about things. I used to have her when I was running radio stations, I would have her. Uh, sit in on interviews or meet people I was going to hire and their spouses and friends and stuff because I wanted to hear what she thought about it. And the thing that would always frustrate her, I'd ask her, well, how did you come to that conclusion? She could never explain it. And the more I would ask her about it, she just knew what she knew. It was this emotional intelligence, this instinctive thing. And she was right so often. It was just amazing. Where a guy, you know, is intellectualizing this and you ask him and he'll explain a whole bunch of reasons and who knows whether they make any sense or bogus or whatever. You know, that is so funny because we were talking this morning and uh, Mary Wax and I came to the same conclusion about something, but uh, something like you just had to figure it out. And I said, oh, I, I am sure this is the answer. And Mary Wax said, oh, I am too. And then we discussed how and we came completely different ways but we came to the same conclusion but with different ways yep and so like for pope francis has said that there needs to be more involvement with women in the church i 100 percent agree with him now the good news is especially in the united states 80 percent of religious ed instructors are women 75 percent of the people leaving leading bible studies are women 80 percent of prayer group leaders are women. 70% of parish renewals is done by women. All those do lead the effect of decision-making in the parish. So women's role is not just to have babies or just to have a family. (laughs) Family life is crucial. And I think it, it, it really is, but I don't think that's the limited role of women like Christ and like the early church. We want women to give their gift and insight to the church. So for me and my little parish, like for the Virgin Martyrs, I give thanks. For Sojourner Truth, I give thanks. For Catherine of Siena and St. Bridget of Ireland in Sweden, who changed the world, I give thanks. I give thanks to Karen Mahoney and Midge and Patty and Mary Wax, because they can offer their insights. But I still think the world has a long ways to go. And St. Paul says speaks about this oneness, that all of us are one and yet all of us unique, that in Christ there is no Greek or Jew or man or woman, slave or free, all united are one. Each person, we're united as one, and yet each person brings gifts to the whole body. And I just think women need to bring their gifts to the whole church. I think God wants us to be that way. Now, that's just the world. And I know that's, I would just want to start that I think there's a lot of prejudice and the role of the church is, yeah, 
to liberate all people, uh, that everybody, we can be united and each giving their own unique gifts. Yep. That gets to the question of marriage. So when it comes to marriage, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the second creation story known as Adam and Eve. So just in case people don't know this, there's two creation stories in the Bible. One, when God creates all humanity at once in great diversity. And the other one, they say, is from the southern tribes, where it's a second creation story, where all humanity is pictured as a single individual. Now, do you mind if we get into some Hebrew? Because I find the poetry. This is poetry. <laughs> um, Go for it. Well, okay. So a little bit of Hebrew. The word... As long uh, as you're not speaking Hebrew, Father I was Lynn. going to speak Hebrew. Oh, but um, you're going to you're going to you're going to translate too. Yeah. Okay. Good. Where it says God says scooped up ha adama, not ha is the adama is earth, scooped up ha adama and made ha adam. Ha adam is is not Adam. That's not his name. Ha adam is the earthling. Adama, Adam. You can hear the similarity, right? Uh-huh. So technically, he doesn't. Well, I should say. God doesn't call him Adam. He calls him the earthling, ha-adam, the earthling. Just keeps repeating that phrase. And technically, you don't even know if the, the earthling is male or female. And that's a point. So you don't really know who's created first. It just keeps repeating ha-adam. But the ha-adam, there's a problem in paradise. The, the ha-adam, the earthling, is lonely. There's this drive and a hope for union that can't be fulfilled. And so Adam, he can name all the animals, that's knowledge, and that doesn't fulfill him. He has vast real estate holdings, literally all the gold in the world, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't fulfill him. So the Hadam, the earthling, actually prays for a savior, and God puts him to death. Now we clean it up in, say, a deep sleep. But the Hebrew is, uh, it means a death and takes a rib. Now, it's poetry. So the word for rib in Hebrew, like the rib bone and one half of yourself, a side, is the exact same word. So did God split the atom in half or take the rib? And the ancient Jews would say this way. Uh, they translate it rib, but it could be either. And the idea is this. It's beautiful. where they say, if God would have taken a bone from man's foot, then man would try and dominate woman. If God would have taken a bone from man's head, woman would try and dominate man. But if he takes the bone closest to the heart, he'll always realize he's incomplete without somebody to love. And then he wakes up. And of course, he sees the most beautiful woman in the world. Literally, there's nobody else. And says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And after that, God doesn't call him Ha-Adam or them Ha-Adam, earthlings. God calls them human beings. And the point being is that everyone is born an earthling. But until they can love to the point of death, is their humanity born. Hmm. So you only become a true human being when you can love to the point of death. So that's why Christ's side is split in the cross. You know how he has this? That's a sign that you can... On the cross, yes. Right, on the cross. That's a sign that you can love to the point of death, of unconditional love. But when God decides to make a mate, 
uh, what it says is a suitable helpmate. And in Hebrew, it'd be translated, and I love this, a fit challenger. I love the idea of a fit challenger because it means more like a compliment. Mm-hmm. You know, a compliment is a reflection, like a left shoe, right shoe. Because you hear some people say, you know, opposites attract. No, no, what, what attract is compliments so that together they make one full human being. Like if all there is is just by yourself, you're really not a human being. And a woman is not a lesser virgin, sorry, lesser virgin, virgin. <laughs> big difference than a man. It's not, you know, an upgrade or a lesser version. It's a compliment. Right. They stand side by side, uh, you know, the side split open. They're meant to be equals right from the beginning, right from the beginning. What gives you your humanity is to love to the point of death. That's the image of God self-sacrificing love not one ahead and one behind or even like so that's the genesis one which i think is beautiful so what is the purpose of uh, women in marriage it's to make you a true human being where each dying to their selfishness they rise as true human beings i i love that well you know uh, <laughs> The compliment there, and you said challenge, a challenger. Good challenger. You, yeah, you like that idea. I like that um, translation. Like in my marriage, I think uh, my wife challenged me constantly to be less selfish, especially yeah. in in parenting the kids and and just you know our household and whatever. I mean, she was there to do that. And, and I bet if we, if she'd be willing to talk about you, she'd say, well, you know, he's challenged me to be a better human being as well. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I don't know. But I, I, the the relationship you're describing, I, I, I've lived that, I see that, I, I see that, you know, when I've had women working with me and for me, and, and I've tried to surround myself with women because they do challenge me, they do compliment me, they are different than me. And they really offer something. I think it's very cool. I do too. And even like, there's this really weird part, tiny part in the Genesis story about Abraham, where Abraham legally makes Sarah his sister. And if you read that in the American context, you think, oh my God, that's weird. He made Sarah his legal sister. But the reason why is that in the Code of Hammurabi, Hammurabi. No, um, before you go, how was Sarah related to Abraham before he made her his his sister? Well, actually, he, he she was his deceased brother's wife. Okay. Um, so then he he marries her, but and he makes her her sister, which just seems weird to us. But in ancient Mesopotamian law, if you wanted to make your wife your equal. You could legally make her your sister, so she inherits. She'll inherit things. She's your equal. So it sounds really strange. To that us, is very but, strange. But he, what he's doing is, you know, the father of all faith makes his wife his equal. And I like that for Christians because heaven, paradise, is not for those who want status or power over others. If that's what you want, you're not welcome into heaven. Heaven is those who love others. So it just seems like marriage should prepare us for heaven, where we stop thinking about ourselves. 
we're true human beings. The the problem I have is either when, to be honest, when I when religion promotes that women should be subservient, no, they should be a fit challenger. I don't I don't like when religion promotes that, but I also don't like where this is my. I don't like TV shows or news anchors that make women just kind of this glorified sex object. There's a lot of that out there, Father Lynn. You know, I was looking at one TV newscaster and it's like, if that dress got any tighter, it would cut off the circulation to her blood. Well, Um, I'm a a big country music fan and I've noticed that uh, as time has gone on and the new artists become younger and younger, they also, and I'm talking about female artists, they're wearing fewer and fewer clothes. I mean, they're showing more and more of themselves. It's uh, it's pretty wild. It is, but I guess I'm seeing prudish here, but if that's what movies parade women as sex, sex objects or they have to look like supermodels, that really doesn't allow them to give their true selves. That doesn't honor the dignity of women. I'm not saying they should drump, dress in frumpy, ugly clothes, but I don't think secular society really honors the dignity of women either. So in one extreme, you have some religious people that say, oh, women should be, you know, subservient. But then you also have this secular media movie that glorify that, you know, women are just have to dress like supermodels. Yep. No, they, you, can, you can't appreciate them otherwise. You, yeah. Yeah. And the image of God is you know, a reflection of the image of God for humanity is when men and women live in complete unity. So that's the role of women in the world is to give dignity. The role of women in marriage is that both of them, the husband and wife, become true human beings, loved to the point of death. I love that, Father Len. I think think a lot of women are going to appreciate what you said today, Father Len. I really do. You you may be acquiring some new fans. And I'm also thinking well, we should do an episode about men and the role of men as God envisioned it. Yeah, Does that make I, sense? Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. Well, Father Lynn, I think that's uh, a good place for us to conclude today and uh, let people know that we really welcome your comments and questions. And it's easy to get those to us if you have some comments and questions about the role of women and men, and mainly women, after this uh, episode. Maybe some life experiences you'd like to share with us. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Just head over to our website. It's www.gshow.com. That's www.gshow.com. And you just, you'll see a questions button there. You just click on it and you'll find a bunch of ways to get things to us. And if you're enjoying the Wrestling with God show, and I think some women might have enjoyed this episode, Father Len, I I hope they did anyway, uh, please share your favorite episodes with your friends and subscribe, rate, and review our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help people discover us. And we hope you'll join us next time as we continue our journey, climbing the mountain of life, searching for truth, meaning, and purpose in our lives. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm-hmm.